0: I've got an author with me today. I hope you have, yes. (laughs) who has written over 250 books, but this is the first time she's been to publish or not.
1: To publish or not, or interviewed, I believe.
0: Absolutely. So So we might get a chance to talk about those other books, that 249. So here we go. Well, part family drama, part crime novel, but all around great read. The book is Life Before and the author Carmel Riley. Welcome to the program Carmel. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. (laughs) Life Before, the title of the book, starts in 1993 in a place called Northam. Where and what is
2: Northam? Um, well, Northam's really an amalgam kind of town. Um, it doesn't exist in reality, as um, readers will find out if they try and Google it. <laughs> well, it does in WA, but not in Victoria. So I guess it's a town that is um, itself my imagination. It's also probably a little... It's in the high country in Victoria, as you can see from the sort of general geography, not far from places like Wangaratta. But um, there's no town up that way that's actually... The right size for 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 the purposes of the novel, I wanted it to be a little bit bigger than any town is up there. So I sort of envisaged it as a town of about seven thousand people. It's um it's in the early nineties when we're kind of in that um in that vicinity. So it's a time when perhaps tourism's starting to take off, and there's a little bit more money there, and it's a bit of slightly an epicenter. So people are coming from other places nearby there because there's work and yeah there's a, a mix as there is in all small towns of all kinds of people and all sorts of classes and
0: rich poor whatever and some of the farmland is now turned over to new development Mm, so it's bringing in new families to the town so there's old families but small enough still for the families to know each other yes Pam Green's family had had farming land and her father had been the mayor Mm. but she's living in town now she's got three teenagers tell us about them
2: yeah uh well one i suppose strictly speaking isn't a teenager anymore he's 21 and he's away at university um and we don't see a lot of him in the book but um he's he's the sort of brainy one in the family and he was the one who went off to uni and just doing accounting um, the second child is Scott, who's in VCE year, and he's a little less applied to his studies. <laughs> and the third is um, Laurie, or Lauren, and she is uh, 16 uh, in in the uh, 1993 section of the book.
0: So, no, yeah. um, they're, they're, they're social, it's a social family, mm. and um, Scott and Lauren, they're popular. And Scott's best friend, Tori, often stays at their place. It's it's a happy house, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're a, a pretty happy, relatively well-adjusted family. I think they, um, are, perhaps if anything, Pam is, is a bit of a sort of laissez-faire parent. So yeah, yeah. if anything, she might be perhaps a little lax on parenting skills, but, um, uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think they, Scott, they all rub along pretty yeah. well together.
0: So. so Scott's in Year 12, and, and we do say it's 1993, and, and they've all gone off to a party. And the book starts with some uh, – when I say they all have, this is Scott and Lauren and Tori and a few other friends have gone off to a party. Um, and this is where something happens that all parents dread. Pam didn't hear of children come home. And very early in the morning, she hears a knock on the door by a police officer. What
2: happened? Um, Well, there has been a car accident, so they're informed of that straight away. They're also informed that their children haven't been, well, they've been injured, but not too badly. So Um, they are in shock, of course, as all parents are being woken up at, at, you know, an ungodly hour. Um, But they set off to the hospital to see what's happened. So basically, they don't really know anything more than that at that point. But there has been a death.
0: There has been a death, which they find out about at the hospital. So, there's grief and anger, and after this, Lauren refuses ever to see her brother Scott ever again. However, how would you describe the Drouet family? This is Tory's parents. Um, that's Troy. Troy. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Um.
2: They are I don't think, I don't think of them as bad or terrible people but I think they are they're quite inflexible I think that's probably their biggest um, downside and they, they're also quite ambitious they want things for their children that they never had so they're, they're fairly I guess pushy when it comes to their kids. And, and incredibly proud. They also have a lot of rules about way, the way things should be done, um, and. Yeah, I think it, it's really just their inflexibility about what what can happen in their lives and in their children li- mm. children's lives that, that drives them in certain ways to, to act. Well, Pam
0: yeah, uh, goes over to, with sympathy and she really just comes back feeling like an incompetent parent and is told to carry the sins of the mother. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, Pam has just started, of all things, yoga, which she's enjoying for the peace that it gives her, but not this session, and this was is very well written what what happened
2: (laughs) well um Maxine Druitt who's the mother of of Troy she has a sister um and her sister is actually in that yoga class so her sister is 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 quite similar or probably a bit more feisty even than Maxine she's not backward and coming forward let's say that so she along with um the rest of the Druitt family feel very strongly that the the the, the blame for the accident lies in, with with Scott and really with his whole family because yeah. he's a product of his family. So
0: this this fight comes out, you know, and it's either <laughs> you or me, you know, who's going to sit in this yoga session. And of course, it's not peaceful at all. <laughs> anyway, Pam feels the community is divided. She, she organises her shopping at completely different times so she doesn't have to run into people and she doesn't even feel safe at home. No,
2: no, because um, uh, at various times she's had um, abusive phone calls, and uh, they've also had um, pieces of excrement and oh, their car uh, in their letterbox, and their car's been egged. So, so various yeah. things like that that don't make you feel safe anywhere in a small town.
0: We know that there's going to be a court case. You know, we mm. um, we know that, and uh, we also know Scott's this, his feeling of guilt and whatever. But he also has the problem that his sister doesn't ever want to speak with him again. And then we find out that Pam, her husband Mick and oldest son Simon are all killed in a car accident.
3: Well, <laughs> there
0: we have, that's 1993. The story is told in a split narrative. There is life before when Lauren was the 16 year old and now there's 2016 in Melbourne. She's married to Jason. She's got two young kids. She's changed her name. She's now Laurie Spiker, not Lauren Green. She has a new identity which does not connect her to her life before. What happens to link her back to the past? Uh, What happens
2: is that the police arrive on her doorstep one morning and she's taking the kids to school and they tell her that her brother has been injured in a hit-and-run car accident and um, she had, you know, has a huge double take because she hasn't thought about this brother for a very long time and she thinks the police must have made a mistake. She hasn't seen him for 20 years or more and she can't believe that she would be the person who would be the contact person or you know, who would have anything to do with him. So she has to think for a little while, what's she going to do? Is she going to go to hospital and... You know, take some responsibility, at least check up on him and she decides that she will do that.
0: Well, we're going to hear from Carmel Riley reading from her book Life Before and this is when Laurie looks at her unconscious brother she hasn't seen for over 20 years.
2: A hint of bruising on his cheek and a thin gash along the side of his scalp above his ear were the only visible signs of what had happened. What his real injuries were remained to be seen. Such a mysterious organ, the brain, like an iceberg, so much invisible, unknowable. She thought of who she, who he'd been all those years ago, loose, carefree, funny. She'd forgotten that too. What had he become, she mused. Who had he been all this time when she hadn't been looking? She knew she should talk to him, but what could she say? Once there had been pla- blamed to a portion, rage to hurl. Now she no longer had a sense of that. Who knew what the facts of them being here together like this meant? What was she to make of the situation? Scott lying unconscious here in this bed, unknown to her in almost every way. She a wife, a mother, but in her mind no longer a sister. Not a sister for a very long
0: time now. Mm, look, she's so unsure of what to do. And it's Daniel Levandi who guides her. Now, who's he? Um, He
2: is... Um, the, the policeman who 's in charge of um, the case at the moment uh, well her brother 's case because it 's a hit and run hit and, and, run. Um,
0: and uh, yeah so she takes this um, sergeant detective takes Laurie into her brother 's apartment and she sort of starts to learn about him and from the books on the bookshelf and also from the returned note that she had sent him back years ago. She relaxes with this Daniel, and I, I like the way you it, it, she actually ends up telling him the real story of the accident yes. and she finds it oddly liberating this is quoting from Carmel's book this must be what confession was like she thought what it did for you cleansing your soul <laughs> <laughs> um, look you're very sympathetic to the role of police you know their workload the necessity to document everything and especially the ptsd they may suffer we also have des at the very front of the book who talks openly about his psd and how horrible it is to see young people die mm. a waste of life well while laurie is in melbourne she re- revisits some of the haunts she used to go to when she first came there as a 17 year old and she expected to find this happy chatty Time talking about the past with one of the old boyfriends, Chris. But that's not how it turns out, is it? No, no, not
2: at all. No, no. I think um, probably because um, it's been a while, and they get talking about the past that that some of the the things. I guess that you would experience day to day and you don't think about, but when you actually talk about the past and you look at it in a different perspective, a different set of issues can come up. So Mm. yeah, she's really confronted, I think, by, and, and perhaps she doesn't also remember a lot of that period or perhaps a lot of many periods in the book. It's hard to tell. Um, but, yeah, she's she's confronted with a different version of herself, a much more fragile one. She mm.
0: thought she was fearless or numbness in those early years. But what he saw her as, it was wild or unstable. Mm. And this is also something she gets from her husband. You know, her husband has always called her self-contained or self-reliant and then my own international woman of mystery. So even he doesn't really get down to the depths of her. Mm. Laurie had designed Chris's tattoo. She had also been there when Scott had his tattoo done. What did she have done and what's what's the theme of the tattoos through the book?
2: Well, I think the theme is really about indelibility um, but in terms of Scott having his tattoo done it happened because really his his best friend Troy was the one who was going to get the tattoo and then he chickened out in the end and I think Scott decided well I'll do it anyway I'm going to go and, and, and get something and this this will be mine this will be my thing. But the other part to that was that um, it was a a bird with a scroll in its beak and the scroll was supposed to have something, some kind of words of wisdom in it and um, he never decided on those words. Yeah,
0: he Mm. just didn't have a wisdom. Mm. The theme goes through the book and it also is on the front cover, the swallows that uh, uh, um, Scott had done. Look, it's an ordinary family caught in a terrible situation And now her sister has to confront the memory she's tried to forget for so long. Very good read. I was so surprised where this book went. It it started off as the family drama and turned into a crime novel at Mm. the end. It was great. Great. So I've been chatting with Carmel Riley about her book, Life Before, published by Alan and
1: Unwin. And here is my interview with Solari Gentile. The China of the 1930s, and Shanghai especially, is a melting pot of culture and intrigue. And according to Salari Gentil, it's also a hotbed of murder. So, Salari, welcome to 3CR.
3: Thank you very much for having me, David.
1: The novel is All the Tears in China... And it's the ninth in a series involving the character Roland Sinclair. Now, I'm going to actually have to plead to ignorance because this is the first time I have encountered Roland Sinclair and I'm intrigued on a number of levels. Historically, you reveal a lot about both Australia and, in this instance, China in the 1930s. So what's got you interested in that historical perspective?
3: The Roland Sinclair series came out of a very pragmatic need to keep my husband editing my books. So when I started writing, I came to writing quite late. I had been a lawyer um, and I picked up writing as a hobby. But very soon I became consumed with writing, felt absolutely in love with the art and so much so that I would disappear for days at a time into my own head. And a writer's head is a Wonderful place for the writer, it's full of people and things are happening and we can be entertained for hours, but it's difficult for the people we live with because they all of a sudden find themselves married to someone who's largely absent.
1: You disappear into the Australia of the 1930s and I think you're actually saying something about Australia.
3: Well, yes. So certainly the Australia of the nineteen thirties has a lot of parallels to contemporary Australia.
1: But there's an egalitarianism. Just to fill in the listener, we have Roland Sinclair who goes to China, he's supposedly selling wool, but he collects a conglomerate of followers from of all nationalities. There's mister Ranjit Singh, there's Mr Wing Zhao, who was originally his valet. And it's a sort of egalitarian community.
3: Well certainly Roland is an unusual man. But he he wasn't an unheard of character from the 1930s where Artistic communes and artistic people were were forging a new way of living and relating to each other.
1: Because he's associated with Milton, the poet, and Edna, who's a shall we say free spirit as a sculptor.
3: She is, and she's also his muse. And Clyde Watson Jones, who is a, a fellow artist but specialises in landscapes. Roland is a portrait artist. So whilst he was born of the establishment and is a heir to vast wealth here he chooses his friends from amongst the left wing artistic communities
1: and that left wing is coming in because you have the sort of communism era that sort of came through exactly. but you've got then all these other historical layers permeating and especially when we go to shanghai because who do we find in Shanghai?
3: Oh, a number of people in, in Shanghai. So Roland turns his eyes east for the first time in the series and he, he goes to Shanghai, which in a lot of ways wasn't actually a Chinese city. It was a treaty port and it was a very cosmopolitan city and had influences from all the holders. But or, there
1: are people oh, yeah. from all around the world and one of the first ones we meet is... Alexandra Romanova, who could well be connected to the Russian royal family. Yeah.
3: Indeed. Well, in the in the 20s and 30s, there were a number of people who stood up and said, I am Anastasia. And I did want to evoke that at a time when it could have been the case.
1: But also then you had a lot of refugees from Russia Indeed. because of the communist
3: uprising. The white Russians, as they were called, as opposed to, and that's not the colour of their skin, that's the the colour of their politics.
1: We come across a Jewish doctor, for example. So in
3: 1935, the first Jewish refugees were making their way to Shanghai as well, and at a time when the rest of the world was turning refugees away, and does that sound familiar? Um, Shanghai was a treaty port that was open, so a lot of people escaped to Shanghai, and and certainly I have met members of refugee communities who are now elderly who have lived in Australia for many years who came to Australia through Shanghai. Uh, because Australia wouldn't accept them in the first instance. And it speaks
1: to the significance then of Shanghai, of China in that role of the politics that were going Indeed. on at the time. And just before we move into the plot, there's also each chapter is prefaced by an article from the news of the day. So here's one. Don't go to Shanghai. The Prime Minister, Mr J.A. Lyons, stated yesterday that the British minister in China had reported that unemployment amongst British subjects in Shanghai was so serious that persons who were known to contemplate proceeding there should be warned not to do so. He understood that Australian stowaways had been arriving at Shanghai, Newcastle, Morning Herald and Miner's Advocate, 3rd of January 1934. These
3: are actual primary sources. They are. And look, it's become one of the joys of the end of a manuscript that I go through and try and find an appropriate extract for each chapter. So those are hunted down after the manuscript is written.
1: But they serve to sort of hint at, at what the, manuscript- the subject matter Exactly,
3: be, exactly.
1: Or the theme.
3: And it just contextualises the story and lets you know what, the kind of, kind of articles that Roland would have been reading in the newspaper over his morning coffee. But
1: also then the issues that uh, Roland comes across are actually... Happen or exactly. did actually
3: happen. Well, part of the reason that we started with this is when the first book was sent to Pantera, who are my publishers, one of the comments that came back, you know, we love the story, etc, etc, but we think you've gone a bit too far in certain chapters. It's just implausible. And the chapters they pointed out were actually historical fact. And it's one of those things where history is more bizarre than our life could ever be. Could we be referring to current day politics perhaps indeed I mean, if you had told yourself twenty years ago or ten years ago of what 's happening today, would yourself have believed you <laughs> and it's It's one of those things. real life can take turns that people don't really expect and and you know in hindsight, we tend not to believe. We think that it didn't happen. And so those articles were put in to remind readers that I'm not making everything up.
1: (laughs) Now, just to sort of contextualise it even further and to overcome my own ignorance, these nine books are a Continuous historical account?
3: Yes. Well, they're, not, they're novels. They're yes. novels. I'm a novelist. Uh, but they're woven into history. Because
1: the opening is with Menzies and such like. And, and so I'm assuming yes. that the previous novel dealt with that issue.
3: And Egon Kish. Certainly. The, so the, the first book started in 1932 with the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the political turmoil that was in Australia at the time with the with the New Guard and De Groot slashing the ribbon all of that
1: And this that. is what makes these novels so fascinating because you can actually learn so much about Australian history a history that we don't really get in the schools
3: No the 1930s has been particularly ignored and underwritten because it's bookended by the very glamorous 20s and World War 2 and so it was easy to skip. It was the Depression era. It was very dowdy. The clothes weren't as good, or whatever. And it has been underwritten.
1: But it's so significant in Indeed. determining the sort of psychology or the nature and of... the
3: character of Australia. Yeah,
1: and the identity.
3: It's in in those times of turmoil that we choose where we stand, and we choose who we are. Now
1: the character of Roland. He's very mannered and British so it's not the sort of ochre Australian. Roland had had enough. He pulled Middleton away from Edna. For God's sake man you're making a bloody fool of yourself. It's, it's, it's very, the style of the way you've written.
3: He, he is a man of the 30s and yeah. he's typical of a man of his era who was born to wealth and privilege. And they were quite British. I, I remember reading, uh, listening to archive footage of someone who was a shop steward, so uh, a very left-wing working man, and he sounded very British to me. So the establishment sounded even more refined and even more British. Certainly, uh, if you listen to the footage of Isaacs, the, the Governor General, Sir Isaac Isaacs, his Accent is so rarefied, he's almost hard to understand. <laughs> um, so Australians did sound more British back then, but men of the establishment sounded particularly British.
1: Now, we better get onto the plot. <laughs> We're filling in all the background. Murder, most foul. Uh-huh. We have Alexandra Romanova, who is found dead in Roland's suite. Indeed. So uh, throat slashed, blood, blood. and... Roland's implicated.
3: Indeed because it's his suite <laughs> and he did have an appointment to have tea and cakes with the lady shortly before. But where did he meet Alexandra? Alexandra Romanova was what was what they called a taxi girl and in those days the Russian refugees the white Russian refugees who were born of an aristocracy arrived in Shanghai and found that there was very little of use that they could do They did not know how to labour or to take in sewing or or washing. One of the things that the women could do is they could work as taxi girls. Now, taxi girls were dance partners for hire. Uh, So you went to an establishment and you wanted to dance. You paid a taxi girl a certain amount and she danced with you. And that was essentially the end of the contract. It wasn't anything more scandalous or seedy than that.
1: But there's a little bit of scandal behind why. Alexander is, has asked Roland if he would like to dance. Indeed. Now, how far can we go into the plot? We don't want to give too much away because the intrigue then starts to develop. to develop.
3: It becomes apparent that she chose Roland to dance with. Rather than it simply being. And
1: there's a reason for that. There's also a reason for the wool being uh, negotiated, the wool contract with Japan. And there are other vested interests all the way through this story.
3: Well, certainly, you know, back then, as now, trade is a political weapon. And what was happening in the world at the time is because of the Japanese invasion of Manchuria and the atrocities that, was, uh, that did occur at the time, there was tra- talk of a trade embargo.
1: But also then, we as the reader know about World War 2 we're, yes. we're sort of forecasting so, ahead.
3: Yes. So this is 1935. At the time, there is no idea of any alliances between Germany. And Japan, but there were happening there was dinners
1: <laughs> dinners, and you have a Nazi element in the story
3: oh, the, uh, the artsy, well there's always a Nazi element wherever Roland is, but certainly also in in terms of Shanghai had a very rich artistic community and I think what may surprise readers is how many young Chinese Men were sent to British universities and American universities to gain degrees at Ivy League institutions. Mm.
1: Roland is a fairly vulnerable character, many mean. He gets beaten up quite a lot.
3: Well, you know, he's a crime fiction hero. It's part of the gig. But
1: but he's a crime fiction hero. He ends up in jail uh, and and such. Like, he has to be rescued because there's, in fact, another murder that occurs. Indeed. Someone he has actually threatened to kill.
3: Indeed. Well, he is a man who is somewhat impetuous and sometimes gets caught in his own gallantry. And he threatens a gentleman who has been pursuing Edna Higgins, who is the love of his life, and making unwanted overtures. And in a typically Roland gallant but probably overimpulsive way, he threatens to kill him in front of witnesses.
1: Interestingly enough, he turns up dead.
3: Which is unfortunate, isn't it? Bad timing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But... We can't give too much away, but the layering of intrigue is fascinating. And who can we trust? Who, can we, who do we suspect? So it fits that sort of genre and such like. And we're going to have to let the listener and the reader find out for themselves. So the novel is All the Tears in China. Find out about the history of, of China, especially in the 1930s. The author is Solari Gentile and it's Pantera Press. Well, there we go. Jane, that was my interview.
0: When I was talking with Carmel Riley about mm. her book Life Before, I talked about the 249 books that she's written. <laughs> yeah. Of course, they were readers and um, English texts and everything
1: for <laughs> students to get them prompt them reading, encourage the reading and such like. Yeah. yeah. It takes it's quite a craft, quite an art to be well, able to do that. I know you've been doing it I've done for the upper end creating education creating sphere, resources for education.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios